Hello friends, this is the AlphaList podcast. I am your host Toby. The goal of the AlphaList podcast is to empower CTOs with the info and insight they need to make the best decisions for their company. We do this by hosting top thought leaders and picking their brains for insights into technical leadership and tech trends. If you believe in the power of accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. Plus, if you're an experienced CTO, you will love the discussion happening in our Slack space where over 600 CTOs are sharing insights or visit one of our events. Just go to alphalist.com to apply. Welcome to the Alphalist podcast. I am your host, Toby. And today I have a special guest. Uh, like almost every CTO I know owns a few of his devices um, and still most likely uh, no one ever heard of him personally. His name is Eben and he's one of the founders of the Raspberry Pi Foundation and one of the, let's say, crazy geeks behind the Raspberry Pi, the device we all know. And I, I personally own one. It, it drives my wife mad, to be honest. Like, <laughs> best wishes from her. <laughs> yeah, I'm very sorry. I'm very, very so sorry, not sorry. Um. <laughs> and um, I mean, it's it's like the biggest hardware thing, independent hardware device that was there for ages, right? I mean, um, even that's... It's weird. It's, it's the third most popular general purpose computing platform in history um, after the PC and the Mac, right? Because really the PC and the Mac have been so dominant um, that, 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 that the third third place in that, um, we've sold about 45 million Raspberry Pis over the course of a decade. And third place in that in that championship, the bronze medal slot in that championship is very, uh, it's very reachable. How many Raspberry Pis? 45 million. 45 million? Times $18, so you must be rich then. Uh, well, the interesting, interesting thing about Raspberry Pi, right, it's a, it's a charitable foundation. Um, so we're not just the, the, third, uh, the third biggest computer company ever. Um, we are the, um, the most popular architecture ever. Um, we're also probably the first time that a, a, a not-for-profit um, has ever produced computers uh, at serious scale. Okay. That so, and that translates into a into a marked absence of uh, of richness. It translates into a a marked absence of Ferraris in the car park, I guess. <laughs> but I guess you're still not you don't you don't look poor. So I, I hope it I also worked out financially. I don't know. I'm t-shirt. You know, <laughs> I haven't obviously been able to afford a razor this morning. So you, know, you never know. You can never tell. One of the wonderful things, and we were based in Cambridge in the UK, and one of the wonderful things about uh, about Cambridge is, you know, you see these, you see someone walking down the street, and it's extremely hard to tell um, who someone is. That you might try and make some judgment based on on you know on on what someone looks like, but in Cambridge, that could be a professor of comparative philology or something. You know, that could be it could be anyone, and it's very risky trying to make judgments in Cambridge on on the basis of what people look like. <laughs> okay, so um. Maybe we jump in a little earlier. I mean, um, I typically ask my my guests what 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 their nerd path is. Like, how did they get into what they are doing? And I think for you, it's kind of special as, like, it's really something special to do, right? I I built this device. <laughs> it's crazy popular. <laughs> I built this device. How did you get there? 
Um, well, so I guess the the interesting the interesting thing for me is that is really my the most recent bit of my career has been spent recreating for other people the way that I got involved in computing. So I had a BBC microcomputer when I was a child. This is one of those 1980s computers that sold a few million units. Um, you turn it on, it goes beep, it boots into basic, you get tricked into becoming a computer programmer because you have a very programmable piece of hardware in your environment. Um, and that was really my routine. So I was a hobbyist a long time before. I have a, I have a PhD, a computer science PhD uh, from Cambridge, but my route into it was primarily a hobbyist route, a craftsperson route, rather than an academic, um, a, a mathematical route. Um, and really, that's what Raspberry Pi has been trying to do, right? So, so, so I got in that way observed that we'd pulled the ladder up after us, that we'd taken all of those wonderful programmable computers and we'd taken them away from kids and we'd given them games consoles and mobile phones and other things which are enormously powerful computers, but you can't program them. Um, and then Raspberry Pi really is about trying to push that ladder back down, trying to lower the ladder back down to people by providing them with an affordable, young people in particular, with an affordable piece of computing hardware that they can use to follow that same. Because I, I mean, I've had a wonderful, I've had an incredibly blessed career um, uh, on the back of having got involved in computing by accident. And it's really about trying to give another generation of young people that kind of experience. So your life started with 10 print hello, 20 go to 10. <laughs> yeah, or, 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 or ruder things than that. You know, you'd sort of go into a computer shop and, and make the computers print not the most, not the nicest stuff in the world, you know, it's some of the uncomplimentary things. Um, and then hit hit enter on each of the machines and then run out of the door and then stand up against the window watching people, watching the staff run around turning the computers off to get the, to get whatever it was you printed on the screen to go away. Um, but yeah, you know, that, that, and the interesting thing is how many young people had at least that level of, because, you know, that's an enjoyable thing to do, right? Um, so how many people had that level of exposure to computing and how often if you give someone that exposure, if you give almost everybody that level of exposure to computing, um, how often that will blossom into kind of a, a deeper interest um, in the subject. So that is then also the vision behind Raspberry Pi that you want to teach kids how to use yes. computers? Yes, and that's where it comes from, right? I mean, Raspberry Pi is a very, it was a very parochial concept. You know, we had this idea that if you could get a thousand computers into the hands of the right thousand children, then you might get another hundred kids applying to study computer science at Cambridge. It was that simple. Um, and of course, it's, it, it, the educational aspect has grown beyond our wildest dreams. The foundation is now, you know, it employs a, a hundred between 100 and 200 people. It um, it runs vast networks of after-school clubs. It coordinates a lot of the teacher training activity in the UK. Uh, it produces lots of free online material for teachers and uh, for, for um, learners and teachers. Um, and then obviously then the commercial aspect has grown enormously as well. So it's so you know, of the 45 million Raspberry Pis we've sold, probably you know half, two-thirds of them are in industrial applications have been taken into what you would consider to be OEM industrial commercial applications. Um, so both aspects, both the educational aspect and the commercial aspect of Raspberry Pi have kind of become vastly larger than what we'd imagined a decade ago. So you build it for kids in the first place, and then you suddenly realize, okay, this is for everyone and as, like at, at least industrial applications, uh, obviously. I mean, it's it's in a way it's obvious, right? But you didn't plan to do that. No. Well, you know, we both have children. We know how tough an environment 
uh, a child's bedroom is. You know, we say, you know, what's the tougher environment, an oil rig or a child's bedroom? Um, you know, the same decisions you make to make great products for young people are the decisions that make the product fantastic for industrial uh, for industrial environments. You know, we don't cut corners on the product. These are cost-effective devices, but they are not cheap devices. They are not cheaply made um, devices. Uh, and they never have been all the way back to 2012. Um, so yeah, um, it, it turns out, you know, we're big believers in general purpose computing. Raspberry Pi was set up to address the disappearance of general purpose computing from one domain, the educational domain. But it turns out that providing people with cost-effective, reliable general purpose computers is a, it's a growth industry. Right, it unlocks enormous amounts of creativity and potential and talent in a whole range of commercial fields, just as it does in education. And 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 commercially, wouldn't it be smart to also have a business line around industrial applications then, um, and charge much more than you do for personal computers? Um, well, of course, we do provide um, versions of our platform which are tuned to what we would call deep embedded um, industrial applications. So we take the brains in any generation, of almost every generation, of Raspberry Pi computer. We've taken the, the brains, the sort of the core processing capability, processing memory, some, some of the interfacing um, in the platform, and we provide those in what we call a compute module, which is a very stripped down platform, which is much easier to integrate into a third party product. So we do have these products which are targeted at um, a, a more purely at industrial users. Um, we don't tend to try to charge more money, though, for them. I mean, we're very excited about what... Uh, we're very excited to be part of a movement, I guess, which is um, putting general-purpose computing into lots and lots and lots of places in the world, kind of embedding intelligence into the world. And I think it would be a shame if we tried to somehow segment the business um, and have different margin expectations in education and in um, the commercial domain. So what we've ended up with is, although we do make commercial products, when you look at the, uh, we, we make more, we make, I mean, our single board computer product, which is nominally the educational product, actually 60, 70% of those go into industrial applications. But even the platforms which are purely targeted at industrial and commercial end up, when you look at their business model, they end up having very much the same kind of margin structure um, as uh, the single board computers. Okay. And you also don't have, I don't know, special purpose software to manage a fleet of Raspberry Pis, stuff like that? We're, um, we love making hardware. Um, we do obviously, like all hardware companies, we're also a software company. Um, so, you know, more than half of our engineers are software engineers. And that's just a, um, that's just a result of how complex modern computer hardware is to, 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 to operate from a software um, perspective, you know, you need a lot of lines of code uh, to make a modern chip do all the stuff it can do. Um, so we have a lot of software engineers. What we haven't ever done really is to see software as a um, a profit center, as a as a generator of revenue and a generator of profit um, for us. Software at the moment, and that might change one day, but at the moment, software is a a cost center for us. Now, of course, there's a, the exciting thing about Raspberry Pi, there's a huge community of third-party ISVs, VARs, who've grown up around Raspberry Pi who are either selling software for Raspberry Pi or embedding Raspberry Pi into products which run their proprietary software. And that's fantastic, right? And that's kind of been the, that's been the, I guess, the structure of the business has been to say, when we make investments in software, 
those investments are about making the chip run well. They are tend to be low-level investments. They tend to be down towards the bottom of the stack or at very horizontal pieces of middleware, which are used by almost all users of our device. That means every dollar we spend on software tends to benefit everybody or the vast majority of people who are using Raspberry Pi. Where you have more vertical spaces, um, we've tended to allow third parties, and third parties have been very successful in making those investments and also in reaping the benefits of those investments. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you started it off and you launched Raspberry Pi, I pretty much remember that moment, that particular day when I could actually buy one in Germany because friends actually <laughs> gave me like a voucher for yeah. one. Mm. And it was only available at um, electronic stores you never heard of before. <laughs> <laughs> and it, I think it was like a tremendous success back then. Uh, like the, the launch, I can't imagine that like you were like calm and sitting there and um, <laughs> you just, I, I, I think there was, must have been this moment when you said, F- this, this, this thing is exploding. <laughs> well, I actually, interestingly, we launched it in Germany. So we launched it at um, Embedded World. In at the end of so this is how we came to launch our product on the the 29th of February 2012. So we have an idiosyncratic choice in that it means that we've only actually had two birthdays in 2016 and 2020 so far. Um, but um, and that date was driven by the fact that we wanted to to um, to to show it in embedded world in I think in Nuremberg. Um, but I was back in the UK for the launch, and there was certainly that feeling during the day. We sold about 100,000 Raspberry Pis, or took orders for about 100,000 Raspberry Pis on the first day. And there was certainly this really kind of slightly panicky feeling that we'd unleashed something beyond. We already had a slightly panicky feeling, right? You know, this is an organization. It's a not-for-profit. It isn't able to go and raise risk capital in the market. Um, it's a, um, uh, it has no employees. It only has volunteers. Um, and there was already a sense that it had grown. The level of interest in the concept of Raspberry Pi had grown beyond what this organization was easily capable of coping with. Um, we became a licensing organization. The thing that really propelled the early growth of Raspberry Pi is rather than trying to make them ourselves, we licensed the design to third parties who made them. Um, and Which is, of course, a, a, a trick we took out, a, a, an idea that we um, took from Arms Playbook, I guess, is the sort of other classic Cambridge company that ha- has a very licensing-based approach to how it brings its IP to market. Um, but there was that sense on the day, you know, both our licensing partners' websites crashed, um, and there was just a sense of the, that even though we'd resigned ourselves, resigned ourselves, got comfortable with the idea that this was going to be big. Um, that it was maybe still an order of magnitude bigger um, than our than kind of our wildest dreams. And I mean, you you did that through licensing partners, producing the hardware and so on. But like, really having it ready for that launch, like, how did you prepare for that? I mean, I, I think hardware is really tough, right? Um, mm. And and how did you how did you manage to do that successfully? What were, what were the biggest challenges? I guess. There was a challenge associated with cost engineering the design down to the claimed price. So when we told people in Mar- in May of 2011 that we were going to do Raspberry Pi, it was going to cost 25 bucks. Um, we had a back of an envelope calculation, I think, that suggested that that was feasible. We did not have a finished product. We did not have a fully worked up bill of materials. Um, 
And the back of an envelope calculation was very much based on the large pieces of silicon in the platform. So the processor, the memory, and the IO controller. Um, and those are the things that cost multiple dollars each, and you add them up, and they come to a lot less than $25. Um, so you think, well, this is nailed on, you know, we can definitely do this at $25, but there's a couple of things in your way. One of them is all of the other things on, on, on the device. There are a lot of things that cost 10 cents and it's not the things that cost a dollar that kill you. It's the things that cost 10 cents because there are more than 10 times as many things that cost 10 cents than there are things that cost a dollar. So it's, it's all of those components, SD card connectors, um, you know, um, LDO power supplies, um, uh, passives, you know, things like you know, little can capacitors, things like that. You know, they actually cost quite a lot each. And then, of course, finding somebody who could make it for us, who we had access to, um, who could make it for us for a non-insane unit cost. Um, and we actually end up going to China. We actually end up building in China. Our first couple of million units uh, were built in uh, in Shenzhen. Um, and then what we've done over time then is to reshore that manufacturing to the UK. Um, but it was a, and it was a big effort. And, and um, Pete Lomas... And my co-founder and I, Pete, did the hardware design, and I sort of made the business model work. Um, and it was a, it was a wild, probably between May and December. So we had our first, yeah, you know, our, our final, our first prototypes of the final device arrived a couple of days before Christmas, um, and then we we launched two months later. So it was kind of a, it was a wild eight months to get to that prototype point, and then a very wild two months to finish off the business model, locate the manufacturer, launch production, start taking orders. Crazy, crazy. And 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 uh, like there was no big buck in the first hardware that uh, you discovered later on where you thought oh, oh f <laughs> this um, is bad. We we there were always there were always issues, right? There were always things you change. I, have we ever had a product that we haven't changed after we've launched it a bit? Um, the first one, we had some challenges with how we approached protecting the USB ports from delivering too much current. So what we ended up having are devices called polyfuses, which are self-resetting semiconductor fuses that, that, that sit in the, um, that sit in the, in between the five volts coming into the board and the five volts going out to the USB. And they, they just turn out to have awful resistance. So if you draw much current out of those, through those resistors, the USB voltage drops. Uh, and that was a very early change in the platform. Um, so there were a few things like that. There were a few little buglets, nothing, but, you know, never anything that really impacted the experience of the vast majority of people. Um, I've seen, you know, what people tended to do was solder a wire across, bridge a wire, if they really cared, um, bridge a wire over those polyfuses. So the polyfuses came out of the design very quickly. Um, nothing horrible, though. Um, I mean, that's the flip side. You know, I mentioned that, you know, modern hardware needs a lot of software. The flip side of that is modern hardware is very remediable, in software, if it goes wrong, um, uh, so so there's so much software-driven content in the device that very often, if you find you have a hardware bug, or you well, very often bugs will turn out to be software bugs, not hardware bugs. And even if you have a hardware bug, often you'll find that you can write software to work around it. Mm -hmm. So you are more focusing on the software or the general business back then, or uh, me general general business bit of software. Okay, okay. And so I'm a software and silicon engineer, so I'm not a electronic product engineer. Okay. Okay. But you understand both worlds, I guess then. Um, uh, yeah, there are three worlds. I think there's a, there's a world which is software. There's a world which is designing chips. 
And then there's a world which is putting the chips on a PCB and making an electronic product. And they're three very different worlds. And I kind of understand, I understand two of them. I've done two of them professionally. Um, uh, electronic product design, I am an enthusiastic spectator of the work of my betters, I think is probably the, the best uh, the best characterization. Okay. Still, um, as like one of the founders of the Raspberry Pi Foundation, you must be a good one to like shout out, let's say, three top learnings for for techies who want to get into hardware and want to want to build a hardware company. Uh, yeah. Where you say, if you do this, then things will go wrong. <laughs> or if you do, yeah, I can I can do that. Um, yeah. I think the I think the thing that's that's very very difficult is to say if you do these things, things will go right. Is a huge difference between. Yeah. I mean, I can certainly certain behaviors will guarantee you failure. I'm not sure there are behaviors that guarantee you success. Um, uh, you know, what have we what have we learned from what have we learned about making hardware? Um, uh, persistence, I guess, is one of them. That you know, making hardware is hard, and you have to persist. And you have to survive discouragement. Um, uh, you know, that's an important one. Um, that uh, yeah, because we we incorporated the foundation in 2008, and it took us until 2011 to have anything worth talking about. And then after that, it took us another year to launch a product. So it took four years to get anything done. Um, and then Raspberry Pi obviously has then been around for a decade since, and has posted you know 40x performance increase. Basically, modern Raspberry Pi is about 40 times the performance of that first product. Um, uh, so you know, huge amounts. You have to persist to. Get to you have to persist just to get started, and then having got started, particularly if you've accidentally created a category defining product like the Raspberry Pi, you have to keep going in order to keep ahead of the competition. So, kind of persistence is very important. Um, we discovered that the idea that, that the Far East is the right place to build electronics is largely a myth. Um, you know, we, we I'm sure there was a time when building electronics in the Far East was unquestionably cheaper than building in. Europe or North America, uh, I think that era was largely over by the time Raspberry Pi came onto the scene. You know, we we it wasn't trivial to reshore production to the UK, but it wasn't that hard either. Uh, I remember here we're talking about a, a very cost-sensitive platform. Now, what it isn't, of course, is a platform that has a lot of assembly effort involved. You know, you don't have half an hour of screwing tiny screws in to make a Raspberry Pi. It largely comes out of the oven gets tested and put in a box and sold. So, you know, you might still be able to make some sort of case for building iPhones or something in in, in, in the Far East. But um, so that was that was really encouraging for me. We build actually build in South Wales, which is where my family's from. It's an area that that I guess has had some level of, I guess, deindustrialization during my life. Um, and so it's been personally very satisfying for me to be able to 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 bring some really high quality manufacturing jobs to my home bit of the world. Um, what else did we learn? Um, I think we learned the, the vast majority of people are very, the vast majority of customers are very supportive of people who are trying to do interesting things, right? Um, that, you know, there will always be a tiny number of loud people who are unhappy regardless of what you do. But the, the huge majority of people, 99%, 99.9% of people understand that what you're trying to do is hard. They're forgiving if you... If you make a good, if you if you do your best, and you make something which is almost perfect, they are very forgiving about the almost, uh, and they give you time to get rid of the almost, um, and that's been useful to us on a number of occasions. Um, and oh, my favourite one of these um, was Raspberry Pi Two. If you took a picture of it using a flash gun, using a f camera with a flash on, uh, it would it would crash. 
because it had a photosensitive component on it. Of course, nobody tests for that. Um, and and after it had been in the market for, for four, four or five days, um, somebody put two and two together because he was really loved his Raspberry Pi, but every time he took a picture of it, it would stop working. Uh, and he put two and two, 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 two and two together and said, does this thing crash when you take pictures? Is it photosensitive? Um, and so, so, you know, you have, you have some of those things, um, some of those things happen. Um, but it's, and it makes hardware a wonderful place to do because people, as you say, people have a perception that it's hard. It is hard in a lot of ways, but it's also really, a really rewarding place to play, partly because you're one of the few people doing it. So it's a bit like Agile software development, just that your sprint length is at, I don't know, three years? Three years, three years. <laughs> just sprint Raspberry Pi 1, sprint Raspberry Pi 2, sprint Raspberry Pi 3. Oh man, a decade's gone, you know? And, and do you guys then, I don't know, sit sit the whole day and, and like solder devices and... Uh, <laughs> I sit the whole day and look at spreadsheets. I'm the chief executive. That's my, it's my job right now. Well, you know, I had a friend once who, in a previous role when I was more of a semiconductor guy, he said, the problem with getting promoted, I was complaining that I, I, I didn't get to use the C compiler very much anymore. I tended to be doing PowerPoint and Excel. And he said, just you wait. He said, you'll get promoted two more times. And every time you get promoted, you, you, you get to a level where you're not allowed to do PowerPoint and Excel anymore. You're only allowed to send email to other people to ask them to do PowerPoint and Excel for you. And he was very right. Actually, he was, he was very, very sage words. Um, so yeah, largely what I do is email. I grind email every day. I come in and I grind my inbox. Um, but um, there are people in the office who solder things every day. Um, the interesting thing, of course, about chip work is how, I said there are three worlds, is how little soldering there is involved in the semiconductor world. That largely that is a software world. You, you sit there and you type what's effectively software into a um, synthesizable Verilog into a, uh, into a computer, and then one day you spend a million dollars on one day um, to have a mask set made, and you wait three months, and then you get some chips back. And they either work or they don't. So it's a wonderful game. It's a wonderful um, semiconductor is a wonderful sport for gamblers, right? Because the stakes are pretty high, um, the, the amounts of money involved are pretty high. <laughs> the, the consequence of doing it wrong is pretty severe. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's not hard. You just need that million. It's not hard. You need a million dollars and ten, the right ten people. You need. Semiconductors is interesting, right? Because it's yeah, it's interesting in lots of ways. But um, you, it's either impossible or tractable, or really quite tractable. And the thing that de determines whether it's impossible or tractable is whether you have a person. There are probably ten disciplines, say, in making ten really distinguishable disciplines in making chips. And if you have one person who is extremely good at each of those ten disciplines, and you have the money, you can make chips. Um, and It is really pretty likely that when your chip comes back after you spend a million dollars and waited three months, it's really pretty likely it'll come back and it'll work really well. Um, if you don't have the 10 people, or you only have eight of the 10 people, you have some, some of the, 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 uh, the disciplines aren't covered, it's basically impossible. And where did you find A, the 10 people, and B, the $1 million? Uh, the 10 people, so, so this is interesting. So this kind of comes on to the later evolution of Raspberry Pi. So you sort of see Raspberry Pi originally as having taken other people's silicon and put it down on boards and made electronics. So it's that, that not doing silicon, right? Building electronic products, not building silicon products. What changed last year is Raspberry Pi shipped its first product that had Raspberry Pi designed silicon in. Um, so where do you find the people? Well, 
most a lot of the people involved in Raspberry Pi have been kicking around in the silicon industry for a long time. You get to meet people and you know who's good and you make sure they come work for Raspberry Pi, right? Um, where do you get the million dollars from? You get the million dollars from selling Raspberry Pis. So you get the million dollars from the other business. So you get the million dollars from the board level products um, and you move that money across into the semiconductor business. This podcast is proudly presented by Sastrify. Sastrify is the agile SaaS buying and management solution for progressive tech companies to help you to consolidate all SaaS procurement in a single platform and reduce your SaaS spendings in terms of time and money significantly. Sastrify's procurement experts negotiate with your SaaS vendors, such as Google, Miro, Asana, or Salesforce, to get the best possible price for existing and new contracts, as well as for upcoming renewals. My company, OMR, is a customer of Sastrify, and we were able to save a lot of time normally spent on SaaS negotiations and reduce our software spendings dramatically. They have a large base of satisfied customers, such as Gorillas, Runtastic, and Westwing. Their promise is savings guaranteed. Sastrify saves you more money than it costs. You can get a free analysis of your SaaS tools now. Just visit sastrify.com slash alphalist and benefit from a special 50% discount for Alphalist podcast listeners for the first three months. So uh, one thing I have hard time to believe is that actually you mostly do spreadsheets and grind emails in, in our pre-discussion i like you sat in a room where <laughs> i felt like this this is really nerdy you had like boxes everywhere yeah. and then like uh, i don't know some measurement devices behind you <laughs> and it looked yeah, as that if was you... somebody else's desk <laughs> <laughs> come on <laughs> there's a trick there is that was somebody else's desk no that was that, that was james adams's desk um james is one of the earliest employees at raspberry pi he designed every raspberry pi apart from 3B plus, I think. So he designed, apart from, so Raspberry Pi 1, which was designed by Pete Lomas, and Raspberry Pi 3B plus, which was designed by Roger Thornton. All of the mainline Raspberry Pis were all designed by one guy, James Adams. He's our COO. Um, uh, but I think COO is a greatly misleading job title for him, just as, uh, I guess, if you think Elon Musk has CEO as his job title at a number of his companies, but I'm not sure that it really, say at SpaceX, I'm not sure it really fully encompasses um, the, the variety of activities that he engages in. Um, I think James is probably our version of that with this COO job title, but he does not spend a huge amount of time on operations. He spends an awful lot of time on hardcore engineering. Uh, that's the desk you were looking at. My desk is messy, but in a different way. My desk is just messy and it's covered in contracts mostly <laughs> that deep i suppose printouts of things and uh, but mostly printouts of legal documents um okay but i i mean i'm a computer programmer i, I oh. have i have written computer programs in the last month uh, but generally only for fun one, okay. one of the challenges when you're in my role uh when you're a technical person is the temptation is to get involved in technical in, de in to get deeply involved in technical stuff i mean i i i can be involved in technical things at an architectural level or at a, a review level. But if I get deeply involved in technical stuff on an operational level, actually doing the technical work, all I'll do is get in the way, right? Because I don't have enough time to, you know, technical work it tends to have a flow nature yeah. to it, right? It's a flow state um, yeah. thing, right? You need large blocks of uninterrupted time. Um, I do not have large blocks of uninterrupted time. I live in a world of continual partial attention. Um, and so if I try and do deep technical stuff, I'm going to suck at it and I'm going to get in the way of the professionals. And so my, my job is to soak up 
significant fraction of my job is to soak up the the, the continuous partial attention world to provide large blocks of continuous time to the technical people and not to get in their way. It sounds 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 meaningful, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's great. I mean, it's it's incredibly meaningful. I mean, it's one of those things where you talk about you know transition to you know one of the challenges you see when we see people. I've seen people in my career transition from frontline engineering roles to management roles uh, or leadership roles. And really, mine's a leadership role here, right? Um, is learning to get personal satisfaction uh, and reward from the work that you enable others to do. Um, it, it's a very difficult transition, actually, for very operational people. Um, and not everybody successfully makes that transition. Um, but it's something, it's something I've learned to find very rewarding, um, particularly in the context of the team we have here who are very, very bright. Was there that like one moment when you said, okay, this is the point where I have to jump off and uh, I can't program anymore and uh, I don't have those those large blocks of uninterrupted time? Yeah, probably <clears throat> four or five years ago. Um, I remember the last major piece of software that I wrote in the Raspberry Pi platform, and that's that's half a decade ago now. Um, uh, you know, very intricate. Um, the thing I'm good at is building fairly small, very intricate pieces of high-performance software. Um, and there was a particular thing needed building. Um, and, and I built it. And and that's the last big big piece of detail work that I've done. I mean, I've done lots of architectural work. I still do architectural work today, um, but not detailed implementation. Um. One one anecdote from my my recent vacation. So I went to went to Tyrol, as you know, and I went there with my 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 girlfriend and with with her brother as well and and uh, his kids and so on. And um, he's working for BMW um, as an engineer, like leading engineer. And I was always joking at him, like. Um, What are you doing at your with your phone? Are you are you ordering radios at uh, <laughs> local Aldi to overcome ship uh, uh, overcome uh, the the <laughs> the shortage <laughs> you have in your market? And it's it's obviously a problem for them. And I recently uh, actually bought a Raspberry Pi at, at Amazon, and I bought it for I think one hundred and thirty dollars or something or euros, even euros. Like, how do you work against that? Like, uh, and do you do you have a problem there? And and how do you Do you act against it? Do you buy radios at, at Aldi or anything? Or? Yeah, that's it. We, yeah, we buy radios at Aldi and we strip them for parts to build Raspberry Pis. That's, <laughs> that's oh, yeah. Honestly, that's been the business model since 2012. You know, Aldi is very, very cost-effective place to buy, buy semiconductors. Um, we, uh, you know, we. Uh, it's been a challenging, it is a challenging time now. It's been a challenging time probably for the last 15 months, I suppose. Uh, you know, we've all seen the pictures of Aldi, you know, um, A car parks full of Audis that have no engine management computer in them. You know this this um, you know this world where you know everybody. I, I was doing home renovation last year. You can't buy cement. You know cement is rationed. You can't buy more than five bags of cement at a time. Right, everything is in shortage. <laughs> Semiconductor is incredibly in shortage. Uh, I think we've we've come to realize how little resilience there was built into our entire economy. Um, to deal with this kind of, we had this negative going and a positive going demand shock associated with the pandemic uh, um, and a, a negative going supply shock for a while. Um, so um, it's challenging. Um, we, we, we sold 7 million Raspberry Pis in 
in 2020. Um, we sold 7 million Raspberry Pis in 2021, uh, but we entered 2021 with a half million unit customer backlog. We left 2021 with a multi-million unit customer backlog, right? You know, the number of open orders on our order books. Uh, so it's a measure of the, the, the you know, it's, it's a nice thing, right? It's a measure that people want our product. But the annoying thing is we've not been, because of the supply chain challenges, we've not been able to scale up our production um, to meet those demands. What does that turn into? It turns into $100, $130 Raspberry Pis on Amazon, right? It turns into, um, while we regulate our pricing, um, it turns into a secondary market. It enables a secondary market uh, around, our, around our product, which is not ideal, right? You know, we, didn't, we don't build our products and sell them at lean margins to enable some guy on Amazon to make, you know, 60 bucks of free money. Um, so, so it isn't economically, that's not like all scalping, like reselling concert tickets, right. Uh, or sports event tickets. It's, it's not an economically productive activity and it's, it's sad to see it happen. Um, what's been going on? Um, what have we, what have we been doing to try and, uh, um, uh, alleviate the situation? Obviously building lots of raspberry pies, you know, we do have great relationships with our suppliers and by and large, we have been able to maintain, not grow, but maintain our supply uh, of silicon goods, of silicon products, um, through this, uh, through, through this, um, period. Uh, it does help, of course, we build our own silicon products now. So some of our products don't rely on third parties for silicon. You know, you got to bet that you got to bet Audi wish that they made the silicon that goes into their engine management computers because then they wouldn't have the problems that they have. Um, so, so that's, that's been very helpful to us. So we've been able to maintain our supply of silicon, but not grow it. Um, we've tended to, I think, to concentrate that supply a little bit on our industrial customers, um, uh, uh, slightly at the expense of our consumer. Um, customers. Why? Because our industrial customers have they have businesses to run. They have people to feed. They have people to pay. They, you know, those people have mortgages to pay. Right? Um, where someone's livelihood is dependent on access to our products, we have a moral imperative to make sure that we prioritize those people um, to to receive products. Um, on the consumer side, what we've tended to do is work with our reseller partners to, uh, to to institute measures which reduce the risk of the behavior that you saw, right? So a lot of our resellers now for consumer customers will limit people to one unit. Um, we've actually seen some people institute um, two-factor authentication, so Adafruit in New York, uh, they're one of our resellers. They actually have now two-factor authentication, so you have to authenticate yourself as an individual using your phone in order to be able to buy Raspberry Pi products. And that's a further layer of defense against this kind of bot scalping kind of uh, behavior. Okay. And when the war happened now, was there a moment where you said, okay, no, no, it's really over or it, it continues uh, like this? Uh, and, and is that true or is it? Is it what, is the, the, the supply chain crisis? Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't help, right? Um, it certainly doesn't help. Um, it's, not the, it's, not the most neg it's not the most negative outcome of the, of, of the war, obviously. It's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a fairly minor um, obviously, side effect. Um, uh, but um, the fact that you can't fly a plane on a great circle route from Taiwan to the United Kingdom anymore is not helpful. Because um, one thing you find is when you are in this, um, when you're in these kind of shortage situations, everything is just in time. You know, chips come out of the factory and you get them on a FedEx, new FedEx. And when normally, you, well, you probably for chips, they're low enough volume 
high enough value, you tend to air freight them. Um, but um, everything just goes priority, priority, priority all the time. Um, having to fly via Doha, you know, having to fly planes via the Middle East now to get from the Far East, to, to get from China um, or Taiwan um, to, uh, to the UK, adds a couple of days to an already kind of stretched supply environment. So that's difficult. Um, I think the COVID lockdowns, the new wave of lockdowns in China, which are going to just, you know, that's going to be a feature. You know, to, uh, that's going to be a feature of the world for as long as China tries to control, tries to do it, do this dynamic zero um, uh, COVID thing. Um, you know, that's very disruptive, actually. Mm. Um, uh, so, so lots of stuff going on in the world at the moment. It's it's a very it's a very strange time and a tough time to be trying to build electronic products. Yeah, I can imagine. It's it 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 really is crazy, right? If you if you look yeah. at it from like yesterday's perspective essentially um yeah. it, it fits crazy yeah yeah and one of the really interesting well it was a really interesting article recently talked about the um uh the assumption we've always had that older process nodes will always get cheaper that what happens is you have a new semiconductor process nodes new generations of semiconductor technology come along um, and the big volume say smartphone chips they they go down the, they're always on the fanciest process node pretty much or one of the one, two or three fanciest process nodes and as they travel down through the process nodes they leave behind them a trail of effectively completed factories that are no longer useful um, and then other people like us come along and we make chips like our RP2040 microcontroller that use, so that's built on a 40 nanometer node, which was state of the art a decade ago. Um, and there's a huge amount of fully amortized, paid for factory capacity on 40. And the assumption's always been that all of that other demand will fit into the, that capacity that, that was left behind. And of course, what the, one of the big things that's happened is at least temporarily, it doesn't. Um, some of that is COVID-related supply, uh, COVID-related demand shock. Um, some of it is natural increases in the amount of compute intensity in our environment. So the attempt to deploy lots of IoT platforms, for example, does create demand for legacy process node chips. Um, and the really fascinating question I don't think anyone has any answer for is, have we entered a new era in which, um, you, in which semiconductor fabs are going to have to go back and spend more money on adding capacity on old process nodes, on legacy process nodes like 40. Mm. Um, and that'll be a thing which will have potentially a very profound impact um, on the, um, I guess, on the cost structure, on the business model um, of electronic hardware. Mm, mm, mm. Um, shortly coming to the, the my last questions, um, and uh, maybe like more more fun things than what was the the wildest thing yet that you've ever seen being done with a Raspberry Pi? I mean, it's when we flew them to the International Space Station. You know, it's it's that's us. I mean, I shouldn't talk about things we do as as as, as being the wildest things, but um, we put a pair on the space station in 2015 and we've just sent another pair up now to replace them um the idea that we're flying our hardware in space that we have a space program is just nuts to me so that's that still really stands out other things i've enjoyed um the, the sort of very broad range of environments physical environments in the uk in the in, in on earth rather that that, that um uh raspberry Pi's have ended up in you know, in antarctica watching penguins and you know the tops of mountains and the bottoms of oceans uh, and things so so seeing this 
I guess, commercial off-the-shelf kind of COTS hardware taken into these environments, which are often the domain of very specialist um, uh, computing platforms. Um, has been has been exciting. Um, I've enjoyed obviously watching kids um, uh, use use Raspberry Pi. Um, uh, a little thing, but I was I said I'm a software engineer, right? So my idea of what people would do with Raspberry Pi was to um, write computer programs, write computer games, because that's what I used to do with my BBC Micro. Um, and the interesting thing that's happened, of course, is that people are much more inclined. Young people are much more inclined to build robots. So you look. So we're trying to get more young people to come to Cambridge. We've gone from 250 applicants to computer science a year in 2008 to over 1,500 last year. So that's an enormous growth. And when you ask those people, how did you get involved in computers? What they all say is Raspberry Pi and robots. Um, and so that that sort of triumph of that second world, the, the, the electronics world, not neither the software world or not, nor the the silicon world that triumph of the, the electronics world in um in education has been a it's been a, a that's wild to me right you get these little kids tiny little kids making robots with our products and, and that's wonderful to see and how can you prevent i guess you can't prevent it as you build the platform uh, but how could you prevent like big kids using it for the wrong things um i mean like rockets or whatever um yeah right it's always a worry, particularly in tough times in the world. Um, we make we make knives, right? Yeah, you know we make we make general purpose tools, um, and the challenge, the moral challenge with general purpose tools is that you is that they are they are value they are, they don't have a moral value associated with them. They they are just tools, and you can use them for good things, and you can use them for bad things, uh, and you can do your best to make sure they're not used for bad things. I mean, right now, of course, you know, we, we we've recently had to um, um, pay a little bit more attention to export restrictions on our products over the last month or so um, to prevent them from potentially being used for bad things. Um, but you know, in the end, you have to resign yourself to the fact that that, that bad things are going to happen, um, and you hope the good things outweigh the bad things. Mm -hmm. I think, like from my perspective, you always tried to to avoid um, your your computer being spread in the secondary markets and so on, and uh, like purely being sold through reliable partners and so on. So I think that's yeah. like already yeah. like, and that does give step. you a, you know, if they're mostly going out through people with whom you have a yeah. contractual relationship and a personal relationship, the wonderful thing about our network of approved resellers is they are friends. Many of them, uh, you know, they are people we know very well and they are people who are, who share our moral values. Um, you know, while of course, you know, we, we have a contractual, we place contractual restrictions on our resellers right mm -hmm. to say resell to, to countries that are on, on various lists. Um, at the moment, um, we actually know that even if we didn't um, uh, impose um, contractual limits on them, they would understand and do the right thing anyway. Um, yeah. Okay. So I have two more more positive questions. <laughs> so, what, what is? Do you, I mean, you're you're a nerd and you're in your by heart, I guess. Um, oh, yeah. Is there is there like a latest? Most recent nerd discovery that you 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 made uh, you annoy all your friends with like a tool or something you you like playing with all the time and uh, tell all your friends about. Ooh, well, that's one that would have required a bit of preparation. I think. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> what do I what do I enjoy at the moment? I'm 
just mostly stuff with kids. Um, <laughs> you know, they, you know what they're like. They eat your life. I have a two-year-old who loves nearly two-year-old who loves dinosaurs. Um, so what have I just what what have I discovered more? Ah, okay. There's a thing. Okay, this is not a this is not a tool. So this is a lifestyle thing, right? Um, Spotify. Um, actually, <laughs> um, what tool am I using more and more and more and more and more in my life in a variety of different ways? I'm using Spotify a lot. Uh, we have a family Spotify subscription, and I use it for I use it to 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 entertain my children in the car, and I use it to get my children to sleep, and I use it as part of a increasingly desperate attempt to not become a dad you know what i mean a dad <laughs> um to stay vaguely connected to uh, modern popular culture um uh and 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 so that's the thing but i i there is there you know uh, there's there's something about having all of the there's something about having all of you, know, you see this with video streaming services as well there's something about having all of the output of mankind's efforts in some area available to you. Um, that's deeply, it's, it's both, it's both, it's both wonderful. Um, and, um, sort of challenging in terms of knowing what to do. And this is knowing what to do with that capability. And it's very easy to use the capability to just tunnel further. It's same is true with lots of platforms. Same is true with social media, I suppose, as well. Uh, there's a tendency to tunnel down into your comfort zone, to huddle down into your comfort zone. You can use these technologies to huddle into your comfort zone. And you can use these technologies to try to broaden your mind a little bit. Um, and, and certainly, I'm with social media as well. Try that very much. I follow so many people on social media who i find really annoying um uh you know who, who's who say political views are, are are so opposite to mine um and i um and i and i my finger hovers over the unfollow button um and i force myself to um not to click um uh, and so, so yeah, so there's a whole, that, that whole family of tools that gives you the opportunity to broaden your horizons or narrow your horizons and the eternal wrestling match with comfort, with taking the comfortable option in those spaces. And, I listen and, to a lot and, more classical music than I used to, partly because of my two-year-old son, who's comforted by classical music. It sounds like a, a terrible parent brag thing, isn't it, right? Maybe my two-year-old likes, likes lots of classical music, but he does really like lots of He finds it very comforting. And so I am listening to a lot more opera. Than I, when I say a lot more opera, I'm listening to some opera now. Um, and that's, so that's the thing. There you are. And, and, I, and I talk endlessly and boringly about it, but um, yeah. <laughs> There you are. <laughs> but that's bet great. You didn't think that, bet you didn't think it was going to go that way, but you thought it was going to be a really cool new front end for Git. Yes. Or something. <laughs> I, was, I was hoping for yeah. that. But still, um, Spotify also comes with complexity as you, uh, if you are a young dad. Like for me, it, it's no longer working for a few years. Um, mm -hmm. Like mostly not working anymore because I get all those, I, I, I tend to listen to all those recommendations and now it's like full with <laughs> kids oh show tunes so, so many show tunes i've listened yes. to the encanto soundtrack so often that if i <laughs> if i allow it to run it i mean that's quite nice actually because one of the one of the things that drives you into your comfort zone in, in social media and that drives you into your filter bubble in social media and in things like spotify and 
uh, you know, and, and streaming services is the recommendation engine is the is is its attempt to profile you and give you more of what you like. And of course, there's no more powerful way to do this than to use the same Spotify account um, to listen to the Encanto soundtrack 300 times or the Disney Descendants soundtrack um, 300 times, um, and then attempt to get the thing to serve you things that aren't show tunes and Pixar music. Um, yeah. <laughs> So you also might know Peppa Pig and so on. So <laughs> oh, we have successfully we have successfully um, insulated our child, our daughter, uh, who's now nearly five, from the pig, as we call her. <laughs> One of the problems with the pig isn't the pig's father isn't the pig's father an engineer who's also useless. <laughs> um, I, I think the, rendi- the the representation. I don't know anything about the pig, but my understanding is that the pig's father is a is a useless fat engineer, um, and so I am very sensitive about. Uh, I'm very sensitive about the pig. Um, we ha- she has a football. We went to the park once, and she found a a discarded Peppa Pig football, um, and, and that is her only exposure to the pig. <laughs> Somebody did expose our two-year-old's a baby shark though um so i'm still fuming a little bit um that our that that that, that uh, baby shark is now a thing in our in our lives <laughs> so coming to my my last question uh which is which is not as funny as, uh, as this one um your your co-founder pete actually um told me about your best kept secret as uh, in the raspberry pi foundation it's actually like a an easter egg that he built into the the board um It it actually like if you if you pin together uh, if you connect pin two and pin thirty six um, of your GPIO board, um, uh, it actually magically enables the time machine mode in your Raspberry Pi, and um, it it creates then like a dev slash time machine, and <laughs> then you can you can pipe in a year, uh, and we pipe in the year nineteen ninety five. Um, and now we travel into the year 1995, and I think you worked as software engineer at IBM back then. And we can now observe yourself for a little while. And um, <laughs> I ask you now, what would you whisper into into young Eben's ears? Ah, uh, well, I had a I had somebody to do this job for me. Even then, I had a, a, a good friend of mine, Graham Sanderson, who who I met in 1995 at IBM, who did most of the the the, the whispering into my ear about what 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 I should what I should pay attention to in the way of becoming a proper engineer and uh, he's still cleverer than me which is infuriating um, uh, um, I think saying aside business things it took me a long time to learn how to work properly um, I think I struggled as an undergraduate with not knowing how to To work hard at things, I uh, to work hard at things that I'm not naturally good at, and I think I then figured it out later on. So I, I figured it out when I did some postgraduate work, um, and, and so I think if I could go back and give something to um, to me back then, it would have been some of that perspective um, on on how to on how to work. And I think it's a funny. I came to Cambridge. I, I went to school went to a state school in the UK and I, I went to Cambridge. Um, school's very easy and Cambridge is very hard. Um, and and I and many people, other people struggle with this transition. Uh, and I certainly struggle with that transition. 
Um, and um, yeah, I think that's probably what I would have done actually, because I do regret um, my undergraduate um, time not having squeezed more value out of those three years um, from when I was eighteen to when I was twenty-one, um, and that would probably be that would probably be the thing. <laughs> there you are. So sad thing, right? And you know, all went all right in the end. You know, I got the PhD and the MBA, and it was fine. Um, but I still don't understand thermodynamics um, properly, statistical thermodynamics, um, and, and and that makes me sad. So go to school again, then. <laughs> no, we, well, I tell you what. Why don't you go tell my wife that? Um, so I went to Cambridge four times. I went as an undergraduate, did the postgraduate diploma, did the PhD, did the MBA. Um, I have had it made clear to me that I am not going back to school. <laughs> okay. Okay, then that's fine. Um, thanks a lot for your time, Eben. Uh, it was a lot of fun talking to you. Um, and hope to see you again soon. Um, mm. Hope to hear more from Raspberry Pi in the, in the future, I guess. We, we all will. <laughs> like, when is your next device coming out? Ah, well, there you are. You see, I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you. Um, the, um, it will happen. Um, I, th I, I do think that the, I do think that, um, the middle of a semiconductor global semiconductor shortage is probably not that time. Um, uh, but you know, we're always, um, what, what's been great for us is Raspberry Pi 4 has enormous legs. It's nearly a three-year-old product. Now we've managed to We've managed to squeeze a lot of performance out of it already. There's a lot more squeezing to do. But, you know, one day, you know, one day. One day. <laughs> okay. Looking forward to it that one day. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Eben. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Enjoy your day. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. Thank you for listening to the AlphaList podcast. If you like this episode, share it with friends. I'm sure they'll love it too. Make sure to subscribe so you can hear deep insights into technical leadership and technology trends as they become available. Also, please tell us if there is a topic you would like to hear more about or a technical leader whose brain you would like us to pick. AlphaList is all about helping CTOs getting access to the insights they need to make the best decisions for their company. Please send us suggestions to cto at alphalist.com. Send me a message on LinkedIn or Twitter. After all, the more knowledge we bring to CTOs, the more growth we see in tech. Or, as we say on AlphaList, accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth. See you in the next episode.